Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of the Know Your Physio Show. I'm your host, Andres Perichel, and on this episode, we enjoyed the pleasure of hosting Seam Land, a writer, content creator, entrepreneur, and author of several best-selling books, including but not limited to Metabolic Autophagy, The Immunity Code, and The Mineral Fix. You may actually recognize the latter two from one of my previous podcasts, since I had the chance to host his co-author, Dr. James Dinicol Antonio, on one of my early episodes. Anyway, prepare yourselves because this episode is densely packed with topics such as autophagy, fasting, becoming stronger, achieving flow state and productivity, defining your why to accomplish more, power naps, saunas and cold exposure, meta-awareness, and even transcendental meditation, each of course with its own practical set of takeaways for you to implement and enjoy. Thanks again, Sim, for joining us. We hope that you guys enjoy the show and I'll see you on the other side. Hello, my dear listeners, ladies and gentlemen, have some exciting news, exciting update. The folks at Bioptimizers have truly outdone themselves with this new and improved formula for magnesium breakthrough. The best magnesium supplement on the market just got even better because it now contains cofactors like vitamin B6 and manganese to improve the bioavailability of magnesium. So for those of you who don't know what bioavailability means, it means that what you're introducing to your body is actually getting used up in a functional way to give you the effects that you're looking for. And with a lot of magnesium supplements, you don't have very good bioavailability. And on top of that, you only have one species of magnesium. Bioptimizers has seven different species of magnesium to support over 80% of your body's metabolic reactions, which are thousands. And now you really get to capitalize on all the incredible benefits of magnesium supplementation because we simply don't get enough through our diets nowadays. And if you want to learn more about that, by the way, tune into episode number 56 of my podcast with Wade Lightheart, one of the co-founders of Bioptimizers to learn more. So for folks who are looking to support their health and wellness and manage stress, uh, reduce anxiety, support a nice, calm, stable mood, get deeper, more restorative sleep, support tremendous energy throughout the day, I highly recommend that you take magnesium magnesium breakthrough that is on a daily basis. If I had to choose one supplement to take for the rest of my life every single day, it would be this one. I managed to get everything else that I need through my diet, all my macro and micronutrients, but because of the soil that we have today, we simply don't get the magnesium that we're supposed to be getting. And with our modern environments, it really helps to get enough magnesium. So I always like to go with the best, the purest, the safest, and the most bioavailable, which is why I choose magnesium breakthrough. So if you want to get your hands on some of this amazing, amazing stuff, go to magbreakthrough.com slash undress. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash undress, magbreakthrough.com slash undress, and use code undress, A-N-D-R-E-S, during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping or simply scroll down to the show notes section of this episode on the preferred platform that you're currently tuning in from, and you'll see a link directly to checkout, which you can use right now before we start the show. Oh, and dare I mention that this is an incredible gift for your friends, family, and loved ones because it shows them that their health and wellness is in your best interest? Yes, it's true. In fact, I have my family set up on automatic deliveries on a monthly basis, on my mother's credit card because it's really the intention that counts. And you too can be intentional with your gift by giving the gift of Magnesium Breakthrough. So anyway, go ahead and use code UNDRESS at checkout magbreakthrough.com 
slash undress. Hope that you guys enjoy. And now let's go ahead and get started with the show. Okay, so we're here with Simland. Now, I typically follow a more traditional format when I introduce guests on my show, but this time I felt very inspired to read directly from his website because he definitely describes his mission, his purpose, and what he does in a very, very concise way. And I think to start with this excerpt here, Simland is an author, content creator, and high-performance coach by education. He's a an anthropologist, but he's also an entrepreneur and a writer, definitely one that I look up to and admire quite a lot. Over the course of the years I've managed, and I'm reading directly off his website, over the course of the years, I've managed to reach a level in my personal development where I felt I needed to share my knowledge with the world. That was the creation of this website and the idea of body, mind, empowerment. I'm always trying to better myself and grow as a person. I spent years of training my body and mind in different formats through physical training, mindfulness, creativity, at sniper school and by taking control of my own biology with numerous biohacks. I believe that we should all be striving towards being our best at all times. That is also the purpose of my work. I dream of a world where we can all be stronger, smarter, more resilient, faster, and happier. Body-mind empowerment will enable us to do just that. Body-mind empowerment is an idea of holistic personal development and includes achieving high levels of existence in terms of physical and mental performance, as well as health. Empowerment means giving ourselves the permission to be great. We'll be able to accomplish self-mastery and thus anything we set out to do. Body-mind empowerment doesn't mean only getting by or drifting through life. It's not about attaining mediocre levels of existence either. Instead, it's about reaching our truest potential and pushing it even further. We'll be taking a quantum leap in our own personal development and become superhuman in body, mind, and spirit. So that's really, really nicely said, Sim. And like I said, I really appreciate you, really admire you, really look up to you. And the first thing I want to ask you is how did you manage to put these words together? And welcome <laughs> and welcome to the show. Right. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. And yeah, that was like a, actually like a pretty old um, excerpt. Uh, I think okay. I wrote it when I started my website, which was maybe like, I don't know, seven years ago or not seven, but maybe like six years ago. Yeah. Something like that. And uh, yeah, like at that time, I just did wanted to just write about and uh, create content about uh, just anything that I you know liked or anything that I wanted to create content about, and that was usually just like this biohacking, uh, health, uh, fitness, uh, different mindfulness books, uh, reading, and uh, just yeah, just personal development. And the body mind empowerment is yeah, just this kind of umbrella term for describing things of like that. And uh, yeah, I think I've always wanted to have like this. Uh, bigger meaning behind the things that I do, as well as uh, trying to just, you know, not waste my time and not waste my, let's say, potential. Uh, because we, like, like the excerpt said, we have like this uh, big potential in us, but it's not gonna, never going to be uh, fully um, achieved or uh, manifested if you're not really doing anything about it. And you also need to have like, at least like a certain level of health and vitality and focus and recovery. And those things that also have to be optimized to a certain extent in order to reach your truest potential. Because I feel like, like if you're tired all the time, or if you're uh, let's say distracted and things like that, then uh, yeah, you may be like this superhuman or uh, this genius who still gets things done. But your let's say your results would be still far superior if you had let's say if you were to be healthy uh, simultaneously. And absolutely. And what I'd like to do on this podcast is I want to sort of peel back the layers and get an understanding of 
how you were able to apply this sort of approach for your personal journey, and then obviously seeing how other individuals can apply this for themselves. So I wanted to discuss maybe a little bit about your childhood and perhaps what it is about your childhood and upbringing that uh, plays a role in who you are and, and what you do, but more importantly, why you do it. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I was uh, born in this uh, small island, well, not a small, but a, a, an island in the Baltic Sea, countryside more like it's very natural. I grew up in the countryside, always, always spent time outside, played. I had a, like a brother as well. For me, like I've always, me and my brother, we were always interested in like, let's say myths and ancient warriors and things like that. Like we would uh, fight each other with sticks and uh, <laughs> that sort of thing, uh, like, uh, you know, create these uh, imaginary battles uh, between us and have like fun uh, at the same time. So I, I think I had like this, you know, this glory uh, perspective on uh, life, so to say, of trying to achieve like similar glories and uh, not necessarily like war, but, you know, the aspect of you know, achieving uh, greatness and, uh, you know, achieving something uh, great, uh, big things. Uh, that Wait, was can I just like ask this, you one uh, question really quickly? Is this yeah. why you're such a fan of death metal? <laughs> I love, I love your music, man. And you're saying this, you're speaking this and, and it just reminds me of the, the taste you have in music. Right. Well, maybe like a little bit. Uh, so yeah, like it also is like very uh, invigorating music, so to say, yeah. like it's uh, put you into the state of uh, mind of trying to, you know, uh, get things done. And yeah, I did listen to like metal uh, quite early. Like I think our first metal band that I started listening to, I was like maybe 10 years old or 11 years old. <laughs> so, and my brother as well, he, he's like in a metal band right now. So. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it was, yeah, just this uh, way of uh, growing up that I always, I was always like, always like, pretty curious about life, you know, wanting to, um, understand how does nature work and uh, how does i don't know the universe uh, work uh, how does the human body work especially as well as like the society and culture which was one of the reasons i think i uh, ended up studying anthropology of you know who is who are we humans uh, where do we come from where are we going how does the culture work and how does those things affect our uh, perception of the world and those things have always been one of the biggest passions of mine the first let's say first stepping stone uh, towards this personal development uh, started happening uh, like at the end of like high school or something. I was like a pretty okay, good uh, student. I was like maybe, uh, you know, like a B student or something, some A's and such, but not like, like a really like C student or something, B, B was like an average, but I wasn't like, yeah, super like motivated to study uh, the things that I learned in the high school. Whereas like now, you know, I've written several books and such and uh, <laughs> because the kind of the motivation has changed, I'm doing it more like from this intrinsic motivation. But yeah, like after high school, I started doing more of this like, like weightlifting and bodybuilding. And that was like one of actually really good, good ways to get into this idea of self-improvement because like you're always forced to uh, get stronger or like you're always like humbled by the weights. And uh, it's, it's a continuous process that you have to maintain a certain level of consistency and the discipline and those things. Good way to train your uh, personal development. Yeah, that, that was the kind of first introduction to the uh, field of just trying to improve myself uh, physically and mentally. That's amazing. There's so much overlap beyond what you can imagine between our journeys. And one thing I want to understand is in what ways did the army training influence you? Sniper school, more specifically, what habits did you break away from with the army training? And are there any in particular that were born there that you now carry with you? After the high school, I went to uh, the uh, like civil service or military uh, here in Estonia. At that in the army, like after basic training, I was uh, basically put into the uh, sniper division or sniper squad. And yeah, it was a pretty interesting uh, time. So to say, like, uh, you know, we uh, did like different things than the regular soldier. We would uh, mostly be on our own a lot of the times, like in the forest, in the swamps, 
just doing like this, uh, basically sneaking around and stealth work. You know, that definitely taught you a lot of patience, a lot of ability to like, you know, suffer and uh, that sort of thing to kind of, uh, you know, stay in this one position for hours while being wet and while being uh, muddy and dirty and uh, that sort of thing in the cold. So it was definitely like, in hindsight, it was definitely like a good cultivation of your willpower and mental discipline. And you know, unfortunately, I al already had like this uh, foresight back then. So even when I was going through those challenges and things, I already had the foresight of knowing that, hey, this is going to be a good thing for me in the future because, you know, it actually develops me uh, mentally and it increases my mental toughness and those things. So I actually, you know, enjoyed it <laughs> to a certain extent because of that. Some other things that I maybe picked up from there were just doing things more consistently. So, you know, in the, in the army, you also have to, you know, do your bed every morning. You have to do uh, morning gymnastics and things like that. Uh, you have to show up at the specific time all the time and, uh, yeah, be also like, moving basically all the time in some shape or form i don't know like yeah just develop this some sort of like a good uh, let's say military mindset a little bit uh, because that's you know always look like beneficial for um, people who are supposed to become like independent like most people they kind of stay uh, childlike if they don't have something that uh, forces them to become like adults the military basically takes at least like depends on uh, at what age you go there but you know i was uh, 18 when i went there some other people go there when they're 26 and such but uh, yeah like the uh, being taken out of your home uh, as a high school kid and uh, being put into this new environment kind of forces you to be, basically grow, grow up uh, really fast and become uh, super, like, uh, I don't know, independent. As you describe this, something that comes to my mind is for a long time, I did want to join the army. I've always been fascinated by, you know, the Marines and such and Navy SEALs, especially. And I'm sure a lot of people can say that. But I think one of the ways that I've sort of gotten my fix and have been able to adopt a lot of this you know, this mindset, this grit is through really hardcore uh, free dive spearfishing. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's sort of been my outlet. And it's just very interesting the way that you describe all this and the foresight that you had. And a lot of times when I'm in these sort of scary, isolated situations below the surface, I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's definitely helping me uh, produce a sort of like mental toughness. So I wanted to ask you actually a little more about your work with Dr. James Dinnick, because I did have him on my podcast He's actually the, the second podcast I ever published was with, with Dr. James. Really, really fascinating guy, fascinating show. And I want to learn a little more about how you guys got involved, how you guys started working together, some of the things that you've done together, you know, the, the, the nature of your partnership and, and such. I heard about uh, Dr. James maybe a few years ago, uh, mainly from his book, uh, The Salt Fix. I knew he was like the salt guy, and, but he also uh, maybe two years ago published a book with uh, Dr. Fung. Uh, the longevity solution, which talked about longevity and just invited him uh, to my podcast, which was the first time we like talked. He also maybe, I don't, I don't know how, but he, uh, you know, saw my YouTube channel and I think he saw m one of my, uh, my own books, uh, Metabolic Autophagy, which kind of caught his interest. So I had sent him the book. He, he liked it. He was like impressed by it. Then a year went on, a year passed and I invited him back to the podcast to talk about, you know, mostly now the salt, his previous book. And after that podcast, he uh, basically, you know, proposed that, hey, people have been asking me to like, write a book about minerals and other books. Maybe we should do it together. So we would get it uh, done faster and uh, we'd be more productive. But, you know, before we do the mineral book, there's also the, uh, let's say, pandemic going on. And most people are interested or like concerned with their immune system. So let's do a book about immunity first. So we did the immunity book uh, first, immunity fix. After that, we also uh, started doing the mineral fix. Now they're both uh, out. Amazing. Amazing. I'm a big fan of your work. 
you know, you and, and Dr. James, big, big fan of your work. And I think that's a good segue into this next topic that I wanted to cover because I do want to return to the flow state and productivity and such. But I do want to discuss metabolic autophagy. And also, actually, before I had you on the show, I, I was looking at your Instagram stories and I saw it was mentioning a study that was discussing something about iris. And I know it's a touchy subject here online, mm-hmm. but that, that kind of thing and, and autophagy. But if you can begin with a, a definition of metabolic autophagy for the people tuning in, and then we can start to dive into some of the questions that I have. Autophagy itself is just this intracellular process of basically recycling, that uh, you're recycling uh, different kinds of cellular material, whether that be like old or worn particles, some debris, damaged mitochondria, just, I don't know, waste, anything that is, you know, uh, not, sh- not supposed to be there, that is going to be recycled through the process of autophagy and it's gets converted into energy again. And metabolic autophagy is just, you know, the book title. So there isn't like a thing called metabolic autophagy. It's just a book title. And from my um, viewpoint, it's just uh, refers to uh, using different like metabolic strategies to uh, activate the process of autophagy for health benefits, longevity benefits, and just a perspective on it. Because there are different ways of activating autophagy. Some of them have to do with like uh, fasting, calorie restriction, uh, carbohydrate restriction, but there's also things like exercise, saunas, cold, yeah, different types of things. And they all have like some, uh, let's say, different kinds of benefits. Most of the benefits have to do with uh, this elimination of uh, junk material, but also the immune system. Then there's uh, helps with clearing out, let's say, plaque inside the brain that is also like pretty uh, researched autophagy in the brain, basically helps with neurodegeneration. Also things like fat burning, so to say, breaking down fat molecules and lipids that is uh, mediated partly by autophagy. And just, yeah, there's the kind of anti-aging uh, effects are kind of the biggest selling points of autophagy. But yeah, it's involved in many other things like the immune system and uh, fat burning and the, the brain health and uh, yeah, many other things. So the way that you describe this, and I think a lot of people tuning in maybe are under this impression that it's sort of like this ultimate solution for all these things to do with longevity and quality of life and and, you know, a lot of times people sort of see that as, as a fad, right? And I absolutely don't, you know, I'm a physiologist, I understand some of these processes and how they can be beneficial, but can you maybe describe what about autophagy? Maybe if you want to discuss the, from an evolutionary perspective, like why does this make sense and why do our current ways of life sort of restrict us from really benefiting from this kind of thing on a regular basis? Yeah, well, uh, it can definitely be a fad, or uh, if, if someone like oversells it or over, overhypes it, then it can definitely come across as a fad. And there are definitely a lot of uh, claims about autophagy that aren't factual and they aren't true. They're just some ideas or like anecdotal evidence for some people. And yeah, that's what that's also the part of the reasons why I wrote the book as well, Metabolic Autophagy, because I knew that you know there were some uh, bad side effects to autophagy as well. And uh, it's not something that you want to have activated all the time. And at the same time, like, it's not that hard to activate it either. Like, the biggest misconception is that you need to fast for like five days to uh, start autophagy. But the truth is that, you know, it happens all the time to a certain extent, you know, depends on the, uh, your metabolic status. And also you can get into it, you know, quite fast if you know how to, you know, pull different levers in the body. But basically, um, the evolutionary perspective is that as an organism living in the, let's say, uh, nature, then, uh, you have like different goals and priorities. Like if you get access to food and calories, then, you know, it's abundance and you are able to grow or it's a good signal to, for growth because you have like these uh, extra resources. Whereas at times of starvation and uh, famine or uh, nutrient scarcity, 
then uh, you shouldn't be growing because it's an energy-consuming uh, process and you're going to waste resources. So, you know, like survival is going to be in danger if you're trying to, like, grow at times of this uh, famine. And uh, that's why, like, during these times of the scarcity, your body uh, basically turns on different metabolic pathways that slow down your metabolic rate to a certain extent and at the same time, you know, help you to live longer or increase your stress resilience. Those pathways also help with the process of autophagy because then your body, you know, knows, okay, we're uh, kind of low on budget, we have to kind of cut corners a little bit or eliminate these uh, unwanted and unnecessary parts of the cell that we can use to uh, survive and uh, keep ourselves alive for longer. Whereas at times when we're eating something or when you get access to calories, then the process of autophagy is going to be uh, inhibited because we don't need it uh, at that point. We have access to the food and calories and the body just you know, prefers to you know, store as many calories as possible for the dark times. So uh, that is why in this modern world, when we're constantly eating all the time, we, uh, we're not really tapping into this frequent or regular autophagy that we would experience if we were to be in, in nature. Because in nature, you know, there's never this uh, constant access to food. There's never uh, six meals a day. In nature, it's very unpredictable and very highly variable. On some days, we get a lot of food. On some other days, we don't. On, you know, at other times, we actually fast for a few days. At those times, we get like this increased elevation of some of this autophagy. Amazing. And I really like what you mentioned about knowing what levers to pull and when. And something I want to ask you is, you know, let's say, for example, people understand the benefit of, of building muscle, right? And that's an anabolic process and autophagy seems to be related more than anything to a catabolic repair and breakdown. But how can you find a good balance? You know, how can the average person, let's say, or the average listener, let's say one of my a member of my audience, how can they find the right balance of levers to pull so that they can promote muscle growth, but then also get the benefits of autophagy? The easiest way to um, achieve that is to do some sort of uh, time-restricted eating. So um, instead of eating from uh, sunrise to sundown, you skip a few meals or you confine it into a certain time frame. During that fastest state, you are already, already going to experience this higher autophagy a little bit. You're going to uh, be slightly catabolic but you know that's can be a good thing, and afterwards you still get to eat. So to say, you're not you know fasting the entire day, and you're not fasting for five days in a row. You're still eating every day, but you're uh, lengthening the time period in which you are being in a state of autophagy a little bit. So uh, you know that's just the easiest way to do it because the average American the research finds that they eat over the course of fifteen hours a day. So that's literally from from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to bed. The only time they're not eating is when they're sleeping. So, uh, yeah, just the easiest, easiest things to do that would be uh, this in terms of muscle growth, then best or the most effective form of exercise for that is just resistance training, uh, lifting weights or calisthenics. You need to uh, basically get stronger in some shape or form. And uh, that is, you know, takes a long time. But uh, yeah, just uh, consistently uh, try to get stronger. Resistance training itself basically signals the body that it needs to have a muscle without which you're not going to build muscle at all. Like if there's not a signal, if there's not a reason for the body to be stronger and build muscle, then it's not going to do it. It doesn't matter how long you fast or what else you do. If there's no signal to build muscle, then it's not going to happen. And so that's why, especially when it comes to fasting or this uh, innovative fasting, then you need to some sort of like strength training as well. Because if you're doing too much fasting all the time, then you're being too catabolic, basically. You're only having this catabolic signal of uh, breakdown and you're not never going to get this uh, signal for growth. So to have the growth signal, you need to you know train and also get enough, let's say, protein, which is you know the main uh, macronutrient for uh, building muscle. Love the way that you described that. And something I wanted to say was I do want to talk about like hormesis, right? The hormetic effect of exercise, and I want to transition into stronger by stress. I know that's one of your big 
up and coming projects. But before I get there, I wanted to, to say, you know, you mentioned how in the US, people will spend 15 hours average eating. What about Estonians? <laughs> what about where you're from? What kind of right. feeding schedule do you guys follow? And, and is everyone over there, you know, do they, they approach life the, the way that you approach life? Or is there, what's it like over there? Yeah, well, uh, I think it's uh, definitely better. Like, you know, uh, I've been to the States quite many times now. And, you know, there's always a distinct difference between the size of people, so to say. So the on the Amer- American side, there's always a, a few sizes bigger people everywhere. And there's even like at the airport starting from there. So I think, yeah, the, in Estonia, the average people, they're usually just uh, sticking to like these three meals a day uh, that they do eat breakfast, lunch and dinner, but they're not maybe like that crazy about it. They're not like so hungry in the morning that they have to have it uh, right away. So, uh, you know, they maybe wait a few hours and there's all, all definitely like stopping the food intake is more common here at like nighttime. So people stop eating a bit earlier than I think uh, at other parts of the world, at least like compared to America. So they maybe the eating window itself, maybe, I don't know, 12 or 13 hours, which is, you know, um, good enough or something, uh, but it's not like uh, fully optimized and it's definitely better than the 15 hours a day. Like from my own uh, childhood, like I mem- remember that uh, we did have a breakfast. I ate breakfast quite early, like at 7 a.m. or something. But I also stopped eating dinner at maybe also 7 p.m. So it was like a 12-hour eating window. And there's not a lot of like snacks, at least for me. I didn't have like a lot of snacks, but it's becoming a bit more common now because of like, you know, the uh, fast food is going <laughs> to infiltrate uh, much more much more easily now as well. Right. You know, it seems to me like, you know, I've watched your videos and I kind of have an understanding of some of the staples in your diet, but it seems to me like overall the access that you have to a lot of these wild foods is unlike anything here in the US, you know, you guys have access to all kinds of fish, for example, and, and uh, man, it's really, really amazing, you know, and, and you live somewhere sort of where you live, it's a little more isolated, right? You're on like a, a on a mountain or... Well, it's on the mountain. It's just the uh, countryside. The countryside. You live in the countryside, yeah. but it's easy for you to have to access these kinds of foods. But is it like that throughout the entire country or... Well, I think that the Estonian food is pretty clean. All the um, laws around pesticides and herbicides and those things uh, are much better in the EU than in the US. Like even like, I think like glyphosate is uh, banned in the EU and some other things as well. So yeah, like food itself is a lot healthier in uh, here in the entire Europe. Uh, in Estonia, like mo- a lot of people uh, do go to like the farmers market, uh, local foods. At least like in the countryside, almost everyone has like some sort of uh, like like a small field, a greenhouse, some apples, orchard, or some berries, and uh, things like that. So, like w- I myself have like a field, a greenhouse, orchard, and also some uh, chickens. So uh, yeah. Amazing. And, and just to sort of, I, I wanted to return to the subject of anabolic versus catabolic and autophagy. And something that I see you uh, post about regularly is cardio and how cardio can kill your gains. I mean, I know that you're, uh, you do cardio two to three times a week. I do some cycling myself, you know, mostly I do strength training, but what do you feel is the right balance between strength training and cardio to get the benefits of exercise, but also to promote autophagy and to get the best of both worlds, really? What's your take on that? Well, I don't think that cardio is going to kill your gains. I do like it. I think it's very healthy for you. It's good, good for heart health and longevity. And it's also like a, probably a better way to activate autophagy than uh, weight training. It's just that, you know, when it comes to weight loss, then uh, it's very uh, hard to maintain like a high frequency cardio routine for weight loss. You're only burning calories if you are doing the cardio. And once you stop doing it, then you're not really burning any calories at, at all. So you mean like EPOC? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, like, you know, there is like this uh, little bit of elevation in your metabolic rate if you do cardio, but the idea is that when you're doing uh, weight training or resistance training, then uh, you're basically signaling your body to build muscle tissue. And this uh, higher muscle tissue uh, is going to burn more calories at rest when you're not doing anything at all. So it's a much easier, like a more effortless way of losing weight or burning calories because you'll have like higher muscle mass and lean muscle tissue, which uh, makes it, let's say, easier to over the course of like years, like, you know, the muscle tissue doesn't burn that many calories. Like I think uh, maybe one pound of muscle, I don't know how many calories does it burn, but it's not like significant. But over the course, like years, so if you burn, let's say even like 100 calories more every day because of having slightly more muscle mass, then over the course of year, that's, you know, how many calories? That's a crazy amount of calories. And no, you know, right. how, much cardio, how much cardio do you have to do to burn that? So, to right. say. so uh, you know, you, you should definitely do some cardio for the health benefits. And, you know, it, it can definitely help you to burn more calories as well. But majority of focus here should be on like the resistance training, uh, so to say, and increasing your lean muscle mass. I think a very interesting phenomenon is how if you look at the difference in muscle fiber composition between someone that does more resistance training versus more of a cardio endurance based individual, those type two fast twitch muscle fibers are more densely packed with nuclei. And then overall, they're denser, larger fibers that burn more calories at rest versus the endurance fibers. I think something that's interesting that, that I want to note is, you know, you can have people that are trained for ultra endurance and you can have a bodybuilder and they may actually have very similar amount of muscle fiber, but they're just completely different types of fibers. And so that dictates mm -hmm. then their size, their resting energy expenditure, that kind of thing. And it seems to me like those type two fast switch fibers are definitely going to spend more calories at rest. So I did want to dive deeper into the, your strength training protocol, right? I think a lot of individuals now are very inspired with this kind of information, you know, to pursue weightlifting if they don't already. And, and I want to discuss maybe some very practical protocols for strength training. What's your protocol and what do you recommend for most people? Well, at the moment, I'm mostly focusing on uh, not really trying to build muscle, but mostly like strength. So like a power lifting uh, type of approach. My basic routine is like, I think, uh, like push-pull legs, but it's more like push legs, pull uh, sort of say so i can alternate between upper body day and lower body day and uh, depending on which which day it is i do mostly like uh, compound exercises the uh, big big uh, main lifts uh, deadlift squat uh, bench press barbell row overhead press of course like pull-ups and uh, things like that as well on top of that i add like a few of these accessory movements as well for the bodybuilding side for the like hypertrophy and the aesthetics and those would be like i don't know lat pull down and tricep extension, cable flies a little bit, but they're never going to be like my main focus. So like I'm always trying to basically focus on uh, increasing the weight at the main lifts, like progressive overload in the main uh, compound lifts over the course of time, just to increase the weight that I can lift. The reps schemes, I usually do uh, at the moment, I'm at least doing like a more lower rep, heavier weight uh, scheme. So uh, the reps are usually between like three to six reps with sets, maybe five sets or something. And then finish off with some of these uh, accessory movements uh, for a few sets as well. But they, for them, I like lighten the loads and increase more the uh, reps, so to say, to get them more like a pump, <laughs> the uh, more the hypertrophy response. Yeah, I work out usually three to five times a week or something, three to four usually with the weights. I take a similar approach. I think it's nice to always focus on those compounds and and uh, give yourself the chance to make gains on both the strength and hypertrophy aspect and. When I started, for example, I did more uh, more bodybuilding kind of stuff. And, and now I understand that when you do these compound lifts and you really focus on mastering them, it just promotes this massive anabolic response that tends to benefit those smaller accessory muscles more than you would with uh, just some isolation style movement. And 
moving forward, I, I sort of want to discuss how this kind of training has actually influenced your quality of life. And what I, what I want to really segment into is, is flow state and productivity and more so how strength training and your approach to training and your approach to your lifestyle influences your actual flow state productivity and, and, and such. So mm-hmm. can uh, help us make that segue be greatly appreciated. Exercise is one of the best things for your like brain health and uh, just mood as well. And, you know, it has like a lot of this helps with the production of these neurotransmitters and uh, just you have more energy in general. So yeah, like my, I don't know, like my, I've never been like, you know, tired, chronic fatigue or something like that. Or I've never had like, like, like a lot of like sickness or a cold or something like that either because of being like physically active and uh, healthy and such. So I think that, yeah, just, just because of doing all these things, um, like, you know, the fasting plus the resistance training and the cardio and the saunas and the colds, like the, all those things have like a you know massive impact on uh, my productivity and uh, mental state as well. Although like, I think like I could, you know, do it without them. It's just that the uh, performance aspect is going to be much higher if you have like the, like I said, the health side covered first. So yeah, usually when I do, let's say, go into the flow state or when I'm trying to be productive and work, then I'm doing it in the morning. I haven't done like cardio, so to say, before that, that would uh, put me into like a highly energized state. But like, regardless, like the baseline level of energy is still uh, higher because of that. Like uh, just having better heart health and better oxygenation throughout the body, that sort of thing. Amazing. And something I wanted to quickly discuss was the sauna versus cold exposure. You know, what's the best way to implement each one of these sort of biohacking strategies, so to speak? Because a lot of people... Are under the impression that perhaps cold exposure is better after exercise to cool down, but as we understand, it's you mm-hmm. know doing more harm than good. And so, if you can discuss that for a moment, yeah, like it's not the best time to take like a cold bath or a cold exposure after the workout. At least like when it comes to uh, resistance training and strength training, because of you know you need actually have like this small inflammatory response to signal the body to adapt and to get stronger or build muscle. So if you do the colds, then you're like, cold is very anti-inflammatory. So it lowers soreness, lowers inflammation, lowers arthritis and those things. But if you do it like after workout, they're basically like shutting down the signal and you're preventing your body from adapting and you're making your body too easy, so to say. Whereas for, let's say, cardiovascular exercise, it doesn't seem to have that effect. If you're doing cardio, then the cold can actually be good after workout to like lower the inflammation and soreness again. Uh, when it comes to the heat, then after the workout, the heat is actually very beneficial for this uh, strength training and uh, bodybuilding because the heat, it's not like inflammatory. It does have like anti-inflammatory properties, uh, but it has like this, I don't know, swelling effect. This increased blood flow uh, supplies more nutrients to the muscles for repair, and uh, it also increases growth hormone. So the, the post-workout like heat exposure through the sauna is actually very good, you know, increasing or en- enhancing the uh, anabolic signal uh, further. Uh, whereas, you know, the, it's not the same with the cold. The cold can be good to take on like on a rest day or um, maybe in the morning after you wake up, a cold shower is great uh, or like before exercising is going to be a good time. Yeah, that's that's when I tend to implement my cold showers as well. I actually did one before with this podcast and uh, definitely put them on my, on my rest days. And I also wanted to discuss quickly just the heat shock protein. I know a lot of people are fascinated by the heat shock proteins and what kind of you know do you have to go in the sauna or can you go in a steam room can you take a hot shower how long do you need to expose yourself to the heat to get the the benefit of the heat shock proteins and what exactly do they do yeah heat shock proteins are basically uh, like a response to heat that your body produces and they start to deal with the stress of the heat and they start to repair the damage that occurs during uh, heat exposure 
And they also have like other benefits like antiviral effects. They uh, inhibit viral replication. They promote autophagy. They reduce inflammation. And yeah, just, you know, in some good amounts, they're good, but in excess, they can also be uh, harmful. Usually uh, to get like this uh, beneficial response, then uh, you need to just elevate your uh, body temperature and cause like this hyperthermia, which starts around like 38 degrees Celsius. I don't know how much in Fahrenheit, but uh, yeah, 38 is uh, Celsius. Once that happens, usually it takes uh, like 15 to 20 uh, minutes to start to see this heat protein response, at least like in studies. And that is like the optimal amount uh, for the saunas, the, the length of how, how long you should take it. But there are also other ways. The exercise also uh, activates the heat proteins and has like similar effects in terms of like the, I don't know, health benefits. Yeah, something that we that we looked into in one of my it was an advanced systemic physiology class. We actually looked at the the heat component of exercise, how the friction between muscle fibers, how just the heat component alone is responsible for a lot of these mm-hmm. effects on hypertrophy and, and such. And what they found is that well, one of the really, really fascinating applications is that in populations that are compromised in some way. So you know, you take someone who's obese or has some kind of respiratory issue or any sort of comorbidity that prevents it from really going all out with their fitness performance they expose some of this population to heat after exercise and it helps them derive so much more from each exercise session. And I think it's fascinating for all kinds of people, whether you're compromised or whether you want to make the most, whether you find that you don't have much time, right? And you want to be more efficient with your training. So it's really, really a fascinating topic. And I appreciate what you're sharing about yeah. it because I think it's introducing this to a lot of people and just showing them how you, know, you can really be so much more productive with each training session. Yeah, it's like exercise perspective. It's also that, you know, uh, yeah, like you said, like some of the heat triggers some of the response uh, to the exercise. So the benefits of the exercise comes from the heat. And if you go into the exercise session with a lower body temperature, then you can push yourself further. So to say, like if you have lower body temperature because of like using an ice pack or, or drinking cold water or drinking salted water to lower your body temperature, you're able to exercise for longer or your performance is higher. Whereas if you go to the exercise a bit dehydrated, then your heat tolerance is also a bit lower. You're basically able to, uh, you don't need to push yourself that hard or that far to elicit that beneficial response because your basically threshold is lower because of being slightly dehydrated and you're going to get overheated faster, basically. So yeah, it's wow. uh, quite fascinating that how the body is able to, you know, adapt or just the signal is the, like the main thing. It, it, the body doesn't care how fast you run. It only detects the signals that it receives from the environment and from these uh, different pathways inside the body. Wow, that is really fascinating. I love the way that you described that. And something that I think another thing that we have perhaps in common is that we're in a way like masochists, right? So we <laughs> we really enjoy, I mean, you can say the obstacle is the way and, and we like to sort of torture ourselves <laughs> or to become stronger. But one thing I do is, you know, here I'm in Miami and it's really, really hot. It's really humid. One thing that I actually do since I'm at sea level, right, to promote an increase in hemoglobin because, you know, I go cycling and I want to really improve my, my cycling VO2 max is I'll actually train slightly dehydrated. I never do this alone. I always have someone watch me, but I'll train in a dehydrated state because I understand that it promotes an increase in hemoglobin and therefore, you know, my oxygen carrying capacity. So with time, I'm better able to deliver oxygen to my working tissues, but is a little dangerous. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's the same as training without altitude. Like you're in this low oxygen environment and it's, you know, you're forced to work harder, but it does like exercise boosting performance effects. So you get the adaptations faster. Yeah, no, it's, it's really fascinating. And for people tuning in, you know, don't try this at home, make sure you have someone <laughs> with you and, and be careful. The next topic that I wanted to, to dissect was flow state and productivity. 
something that I know you're fascinated by. And I want to start with a definition. How would you define flow state? Well, a flow state is like a state of consciousness where you are fully immersed with the thing that you're doing and you lose a sense of time and your sense of self. So to say, so just like there's no uh, distinction between you and the thing they're doing. You're almost like the same thing, and you're kind of completely in this uh, wormhole that you're uh, focused. Just the only thing that you are thinking about is the thing that you're doing. And the flow state is also something requires to be slightly challenging, but uh, not too easy. So in between, like a difficulty and easiness, you're navigating between that because yeah, like if it's too difficult, you're gonna get frustrated. If it's too easy. You're gonna get bored, so it's this sweet spot between the right amount of challenge that keeps you like hooked and、uh, keeps you just in the zone. Yeah, there's in psychology. I mean, I'm, I was about to look it up because I forget the name, but there's a famous scientist who describes how your best performance is right between a highest level of arousal or the lowest. It's like right in between. You want like a sort of like a moderate level of arousal to really be fully invested and to really get your best. I mean, from there, derive your best. Sort of, and the lovely definition that you gave. You know, I definitely see it as a complete in- investment in the, in the present moment. Something that I wanted to to ask you was sort of what habits do you practice? Like, what's your protocol if you have one? Beyond, I know your lifestyle obviously plays a role, but do you have any habits that help you enter this flow state? Right. By now, it's just I've you know basically、uh, done、uh, the things that I do for so long that I'm able to go into the flow with like quite easily because I just need to start. It, you know, there's gonna be maybe like some initially you're gonna get slightly more distracted and more bumps in the road, but you have to kind of ignore them and、uh, still keep pushing through. So I think that is the kind of the biggest obstacle most people have that they just stop, they get distracted too fast before they get get into like any、uh, of this、uh, momentum. So the kind of you know the longer you gain this momentum, then the easier it is to maintain it. And、uh, yeah, like for me, I just try to eliminate all the distractions to make it easier for myself. Like I'm not gonna have my、uh, phone next to me. I'm not gonna have like messaging or something、uh, open. Just maybe like the only thing I do have is like、uh, listen to music, and just、uh, kind of let myself know mentally that okay, this is the time that I you know need to focus and、uh, be slightly more productive, so to say. Like the mental state is also important. That if you're expecting to go into the flow,、uh, then you're at least like more likely to achieve it.、Uh, whereas if you're like you know. Fooling around and not taking it seriously at all,、uh, then you're probably not going to be able to do it because you're gonna get, like distracted before that. Sort of like a nocebo effect. You don't believe in it, so it's not going to happen. Right. And what kind of music do you listen to when you want to get in the flow state? It's not. Is it death metal <laughs> <laughs> or what? What is it? Yeah, but it's the same same kind of music usually. Yeah. Really, really. Okay, <laughs> that's interesting. I I recently discovered a playlist on Spotify. I think you would appreciate it. Follow this former Navy SEAL on Instagram. I forget his name. But the name of the playlist is Mac Attack or Metal Mac Attack,、mm-hmm. and I find that it really helps me get in the zone when I exercise. But I've never attempted it for, you know, workflow or anything. When I work, I tend to listen to more sort of no vocals, just sort of like a steady state flowing music.、Mm. It's interesting. I'm gonna try the death metal and and, and see、right. oh the heavy metal death metal, see how it goes. Well, and, I take I take naps with it as well. Like、uh, if I、right. usually, it's actually very good for the naps because it's like you know. Quite noisy and blocks out all the outside noise, and it kind of almost tranquilizes you. Almost. <laughs> wait, wait. You listen to the death metal while you nap or after you nap? While I nap. When I go to take a nap, then I, you know, put earphones in and listen to it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you can take a nap with that kind of music playing. That's incredible.、Yeah. I know that you have all these techniques for napping. I, I didn't plan to discuss this on this podcast, but I was hoping maybe I could bring you on sometime to discuss it. But if you could. Briefly touch on that. You have all these strategies that I've seen, and what's your approach to power napping? I know you have like a scientific method to it that I'm really, really、um, fascinated by. 
usually I take it maybe uh, five times a week or something. So not every day, uh, but on most days, yeah, I take usually in the afternoon around like two or three p.m. I take like a twenty to a thirty minute nap. Like the idea or the goal is to uh, you know get some of the benefits of this uh, napping. So in some studies they find that this short nap in uh, people uh, helps with like stress, it, it improves like cardiovascular, let's say health or reduces the risk of this uh, cardiovascular disease and stroke and things like that. And also like helps with alertness, so to say it restores your cognition to a certain extent. And yeah, just I uh, enjoy it as well. I may not be sleeping that long during the nighttime. Uh, so that I sleep a bit shorter for the night and th- this nap in the afternoon is going to help me to like, you know, make up for it also restore my focus and concentration. Like you don't want to take it for too long. If you nap for like an hour or something, then you may, you may get uh, basically uh, waken up from this middle of the sleep cycle and you're going to be more tired and groggy, which, you know, a lot of people experience. So if you keep the nap slightly shorter, 20 to 30 minutes, then uh, you're not going to go into this deep sleep and you're going to stay in the shallow uh, light stage of sleep where you're still not awake, but you're not in this uh, really deep state sleep as well. For your longer sleep session, do you time your uh, sleep cycles as well? So at nighttime, when you're going to go get your standard longer sleep session, do you time it so that you wake up in a light stage of sleep? No. Usually I wake up with like the sunrise or something. I don't use like an alarm clock or anything, but there are like some alarm clocks that, are, that do uh, detect it and yeah. try to wake you up at the lighter stage of sleep. But I, I don't know. I, I personally feel like that I would naturally do it anyway from like this uh, at the end of the REM sleep or at the uh, like a light light sleep stage the approach that i've taken that i feel has helped me a lot i really don't enjoy alarms whatsoever i've been able to get away with a certain method that helps me oftentimes wake up before the alarm and so Mm. on most days i actually wake up and i get to turn the alarm off before it even goes and sounds but the way i do this is i sort of assume either 15 or 30 minutes to fall asleep depending on on how tired i am and then i do a multiple of about 90 minutes which is a standard full cycle. So for example, you know, let's say it's going to take me approximately 30 minutes to fall asleep. I'll be in bed for six and a half hours and I'll time the alarm for then. Because I, even though I'd like to go to sleep around the same time every day, sometimes with responsibilities that come up, I'm not able to, but I always try to time it. So it's either, you know, four and a half hours plus estimated time to fall asleep or six hours or seven and a half or nine, that kind of thing. And as far as napping goes, I haven't really done much napping. And I wanted to ask you what you think about there's a technique where people will take like a shot of espresso that will do like a 20, 30 minute nap. And then by the time they wake up, it's kicked in and they're ready to go after their nap. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that technique? Well, I've tried it myself as well in the past. So it's like coffee napping. Like, I don't know, like I haven't noticed like a huge difference uh, between them. And like for me, like I'm a pretty fast metabolizer of caffeine as well. Even if I do drink coffee before taking a nap, then usually I'm still able to like fall asleep to a certain extent. I think that, you know, in theory, it can work, so to say that, because it does take a little bit of time for the caffeine to basically hit the bloodstream or like you, you wake up, yeah, like with the caffeine uh, waking up. In theory, it does work. Great. So return to the topic of productivity and flow state. I'm sure people understand the effect that good sleep can have on your productivity, your mood and the quality of the work that you can do. What about chasing meaning? You know, it seems to me like you're a person who's constantly chasing something that, that really means something to you and gives you a lot of value. What kind of role do you think that plays in your ability to focus and reach this flow state? Yeah, well, I think it's a pretty huge because uh, like Nietzsche's quote that if you have a big enough of a why, then like you, you can do anything or like anyhow becomes possible. So, uh, you know, even if you are 
tired or if you're unmotivated, then reminding yourself the meaning or the why or the goals that you have, then it's much easier to uh, overcome that and overcome this uh, issue. Definitely very beneficial to have like big goals and uh, like a purpose and purpose themselves are good and they definitely helps you to get motivated and uh, get things done. But like the meaning behind it is actually like much more powerful, so to say, like, I don't know, like the meaning itself is actually more impactful than the purpose or the goals themselves. Like this, uh, the meaning is almost like the backdrop behind the goals yeah i think that's more, more uh, important and that meaning can be quite a lot of things different things like a lot of people find meaning in religion some people find it in um, money or status other people find it in like family and things like that so it's usually in like actually like studies as well that the people with bigger purpose and meaning in their life they live longer and they're healthier so yeah it's actually just the psychology kind of overrides a lot of the physiology so if you're you know psychologically able to derive some, uh, let's say, power from that meaning, then, uh, yeah, it has like a positive effect on uh, your physiology. Wow. And what's your why? Well, for me, it's uh, this uh, idea of uh, trying to maximize my potential. And at the same time, also just, you know, taking care of my family and things like that, my future generations as well. So to say like that, it will be easier for them and et cetera, et cetera, and that kind of thing. So it's a very like a humanist approach, very much about improving your ability to pass on your values, your beliefs, but also more importantly, your, your DNA, right? It's right. this yeah. level of fitness on so many different realms and dimensions. Chasing this why and chasing this purpose, it continues to bring me somewhere special. And it's really sort of supported, like you said, it's like a backdrop and it supported so much of this ability that I never knew I had. And I think it comes from a place of self-awareness and wanting to do my best for the world, but also for myself and uncovering knowledge that not only helps me, but that I can share with others. And, and it seems that as content creators, you know, we have that passion in common. I wanted to ask you a little more about free time and how free time plays a role in, in your productivity. Because I know that you do a lot of drawing and lots of artistic work. And how do you find that helps with your quality of life being and, mm. and your flow state? Well, uh, fortunately, like the work that I do itself is almost like free time or, you know, it's uh, fun or it's enjoyable. So it's not that uh, feels like it, it doesn't feel like a chore. So I'm, like, uh, fortunately in that sense, yeah, like when I'm not actually doing content creation or when I'm not writing or something, then yet the free time, uh, it's very you know important because you can't really uh, basically stay hyper-focused uh, all the time 24-7 because your brain is going to, you know, overfry eventually and taking these, uh, breaks is actually very beneficial for uh, like storing the information, keeping it in memory for longer, and also recovering. I call it actually like a strategic procrastination. So <laughs> you're like strategically procrastinating so that you could, you know, basically be more productive afterwards. So it's not procrastination in a sense, but yeah, doing something just, you know, quote unquote dumb or not dumb, but later at a time, those things can be uh, good given that you have actually done something productive beforehand and you're going to do it uh, afterwards. So, yeah, <laughs> I think you just helped me in one sentence. I think you helped me sort of find an excuse for all of the massive amount of procrastination that I've had in my life. <laughs> I just thought to be so detrimental, but I think that's a really, really nice way to put it. And I wanted to ask you, how do you plan if you do, you know, how do you decide when the free time is, is appropriate? Mm. I do have different blocks of time in my day. So like the first, first part of the day is for the like, productivity and uh, they work things. Uh, so that I would get it over with and I wouldn't have like this uh, pressure later in my day. After that, I do have like a, you know, some mini break, like going for a walk, uh, fresh in my mind. And also, yeah, like not work maybe 
check on social media and things like that. I'll do that. Uh, but in the uh, afternoon, I also have like doing something again that is uh, requires some work, but it doesn't like this uh, super flow state, something easier. In the evenings, I usually uh, not like really working at all. And yeah, just uh, kind of enjoying the evening, relaxing. So that is usually the time I don't have like this. It's good to have like this uh, playtime and free time, but not at the time when you're supposed to work. If I am working, then I'm working. And if I'm like playing or uh, having free time, then I'm you know doing that. I'm good to kind of switch it over. It seems to me like you're very good at establishing or being in the present moment, you know, with whatever you mm. do. I know a lot of people have trouble because they sort of mix that, those responsibilities. They go, well, okay, I'm going to go and, and have this free time, but I'm going to be thinking about the responsibility I have and the work I have to do. And then I just think it sort of clouds everything because then you're thinking about something else while you're doing something. And it seems very impractical and creates a lot of brain fog in a lot of ways. Ever since I began to understand decision-making fatigue and how towards the earlier hours of the day, we tend to be more rational. And then throughout the length of the day, we become more or less rational and more emotional right, in our decision-making. I think it's really helped me design a sort of morning routine and such that really sets me up for productive flow early. And then as the day proceeds, I can sort of relax, but find that present moment in all kinds of hobbies and things that I enjoy that take my mind off of work. I want to ask you about your morning routine let's say, mm -hmm. how you optimize your flow state early so that you can be present later when you do you know, these hobbies and, and you enjoy your free time. A few years, like years back, I did have like a more um, thorough morning routine. Like I would do uh, like stretching. I would go outside for sure to get like sunlight exposure and like stretch a little bit, move a bit. And I would also meditate maybe for uh, 20 minutes or something. Then I would do journaling as well, just kind of gather my thoughts for the coming day. And then I would start to do like the writing or something. So it took me almost like an hour to get all those things, the cold shower as well in there. And so that was all I did. Now I do only like I go outside, look at the sun for a little bit and maybe wash my face and usually maybe like a cold shower sometimes. And then I start to work already. So I've kind of cut down a lot of the, um, the things that I do in the morning routine um, to very bare minimum uh, now, mostly because of like, like I don't feel like I need to do the, all those things because it can also become, become like another distraction that, oh, I need to do this routine. I need to do the journaling. I need to do uh, that. Uh, I need to write out my to-do list or something like that. It, it definitely becomes like a distraction and, you know, a chore. So uh, yeah, like at the moment, like it's a good uh, skill to develop, to, you know, develop this discipline and this focus. But, you know, after you achieve a certain level of this discipline and uh, focus, then uh, those things aren't uh, like necessary. There can be tools to uh, help you put you into that state, but you should have like the skill set already there. So there's a difference between like these tools and the and the skill set. Like the tools can be like coffee or caffeine, but the skill set is the focus itself, the ability to focus and go into the flow state. So now I don't really need anything to put me into the flow state. I just need to be there. I just need to go. <laughs> and how do you feel meditation plays a role in all of this? What kind of meditation do you practice and how do you find you're able to sort of go, okay, I'm waking up, I do a couple of the things, just the things I need to do, right? You've cut down on the morning routine, but then is there like a, a meditative state that occurs? Is there some kind of breathing that you do? How do you sort of produce what seems to me like a, it's like an endogenous sort of dive into the flow state? How do you achieve that? If I do meditation every once in a while, then it's a transcendental meditation. So it's a, like a mantra-based meditation. You repeat this mantra in your head. After a while, you basically stop repeating the mantra, but you have this, um, like the vibration of the mantra is still there. Like your 
not vocalizing the mantra, but you're feeling the uh, the uh, frequency or the vibration of it that keeps you in this uh, meditative state. And that is definitely very beneficial for just overall mindfulness and self-awareness and focus and reduce stress. A lot of benefits uh, to meditation. I do think that it has had like a pretty uh, powerful uh, effect on the things that I do or the skills that I accumulated over the years. It definitely has helped with that. But yeah, nowadays I don't have like any like a trigger or something. Uh, so yeah, it's just the uh, the trigger itself is the work, or you know, uh, I start the work and that is the trigger itself. <laughs> so it's almost like an automatic uh, process uh, that occurs. There isn't uh, something that you know puts me there. Just chasing that meaning, reminding yourself what your why is, and sort of that helps put you there because you feel you need to be there. How would you suggest someone can start to learn and and implement this kind of uh, meditation? What's the best way to learn? Did you read a book? Did you watch a show or a podcast? And you know, how do you how do you yeah. pick up on this habit? Well, the Transcendental Meditation itself, there are different organizations across the world. It's an organization uh, separately, and you have to join it. And uh, you're going to get a teacher who kind of gives you this mantra, teaches you the technique. It's very simple. It's you know five minute technique, and uh, you're able to also learn it in basically minutes. After that, you can you know start doing it. Oh wow! In theory, you don't need to join the organization, and you you don't need to you know get the specific mantra from your teacher. The mantras are all online, but there is like you know this. Um, let's say, like a more spiritual or uh, ritualistic aspect to it as well. I did join the organization because I did my uh, my anthropology thesis on uh, this uh, transcendental meditation. But yeah, like you can practice any kind of meditation as well, like just a regular mantra-based meditation, like focusing on just one uh, two-syllable words, like nature or culture or I am or something, or like mindfulness meditation, vipassana meditation, Loving kindness meditation, different kinds of meditations, they do have like a, quite similar effects. Uh, but the one that I find most effective is usually the mantra based. Amazing. And so th- this is sort of like uh, for me now trying to figure out, is it a case of the chicken or the egg? Did this sort of mentorship and this transcendental meditation, does this happen before your thesis or after the thesis or during the thesis? I did meditation before I started writing the thesis. I was meditating uh, even like during my first year of my uh, college or university, the thesis was in the last year. So yeah, I was already doing the meditation. The reason I chose the, the Transcendental Meditation Organization itself was because I kind of Google searched, like what kind of meditation organizations are in Estonia. <laughs> and there aren't like many of them. And you know, Transcendental Meditation is uh, one of the more, let's say, famous ones as well. So I kind of chose that. But yeah, it kind of you know, surprised me in a positive way that it was yeah, pretty uh, effective and it did have like a good results uh, for me as well. My thesis was mostly about how does uh, transcendental meditation affect like your uh, consciousness? You know, how does it affect your sense of self, both during the meditation and outside of it? Yeah, what kind of an impact does it have on uh, your like anthropological side, which would kind of try to uh, describe how people live, basically, how does their culture affect them? Correct me if I'm wrong, but in your thesis, you describe how some of this meditation can bring you to a state similar to what you'd experience under some kind of psychedelic drug, right? You can have a sort of like a psychedelic experience through meditation. Is that something that you mentioned in your thesis or am I making that up? I don't think that I mentioned that psychedelics in the thesis, but um, when you are in this meditative state, you can describe it as like, there's no like thoughts, no uh, chatter. You're just like observing the present moment, what is there with no judgment. So you're not like trying to uh, basically judge the environment you're just observing there and in uh, this uh, transcendental meditation it's called this pure consciousness 
like blissful, relaxed, uh, calm, but fully aware, aware and awake, fully present and there, but you're like very relaxed and uh, calm. It's not psychedelic in the sense that it doesn't like alter your uh, state of consciousness, but it does, you know, has like this um, very blissful effect. Like it's very enjoyable. You just want to be there. <laughs> you know, I think I'm able to achieve that sort of state pretty frequently through my own meditative practice. And again, also through visualization and really sort of uh, reminding myself my purpose and, and why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I, it seems to me like uh, the transcendental meditation would help me program myself to enter this state more strategically, so to speak. I'm definitely wanting to, to give this a try. And for the people tuning in, what's the name of the organization? It's just Transcendental Meditation Organization. Is that what yeah, it was? Yeah, Transcendental Meditation, yeah. Okay, amazing. Amazing. To sort of wrap this up, I wanted to, to ask you, you know, what are some practical takeaways? I know that you've discussed a lot. We've really gone all over the place with this show. But what are some, some practical takeaways, um, maybe some things that you recommend for, for the audience some books, some final words, thoughts on meditation and mindfulness or following your, your passion, your purpose. When we were talking about, you know, you're finding your purpose and uh, trying to achieve your potential, then it's, you know, goes back to like this mastery, which is also one awesome book that I read by Robert Greene. If you're trying to accomplish something, then you, you should like to work, try to become like a master at it. And then it takes a long time, but it's also one of the most fulfilling things in a sense. Like, you know, if you become a master at something, then, uh, you need to be able to cultivate flow. You need to cultivate discipline. You need to cultivate like this purpose and goals behind it. The goal of master itself, you know, it's, it's not something that you can achieve. You're never going to become a full master. You're, it's a constant process. You always have to be uh, working on it. And even if you think that you achieve mastery, then, you know, there's always going to be another challenge and new uh, things that you need to overcome, etc. So uh, you can almost find this uh, bigger meaning and purpose in the process of mastery itself, trying to become a master at something that you're, you know, passionate about in the process itself, you're going to almost, you know, at least work on uh, trying to achieve your full potential because like, I, I think like the full potential itself is <laughs> almost unachievable. Like we're never going to achieve like our fullest potential. We can just work on it. Amazing. I think that passion is, in my opinion, the purest form of expertise because it is a bottomless well of growth mm -hmm. and, and learning. And I think that the the golden question for you here is how do you think that and knowing about our physiology and sort of the science behind it can help us approach mastery. Well, uh, you can definitely uh, use a lot of like power naps and good sleep hygiene uh, to you know retain skills a lot better. Being able to uh, like a lot of the memory retention and memory consolidation happens in sleep. So if you have bad sleep, then you're gonna forget about the skills faster, and you're you're also lacking uh, neuroplasticity. Like neuroplasticity is the brain uh, rewiring itself. So uh, during the process of mastery and learning new things, you are engaging in uh, neuroplasticity and uh, you know, building certain pathways in the brain. So uh, things that you know, break that or prevent that from happening are sleep deprivation and poor recovery or like let's say inflammatory diet, as well as just like negative thoughts and uh, things like that, they're uh, kind of clouding your uh, way of thinking and uh, preventing you from uh, you know, working on the mastery process. So in a way, it's sort of like you have a certain purpose, certain passion, or certain why behind, you know, wanting to discover this mastery. But a, a lot of that has to do with the quality of life that you maintain. And in order to, mm. to achieve and maintain that quality of life, it takes some understanding of science and your physiology, so to speak. So amazing, really, really, really amazing. I really like the way you worded that. And, and again, Sim, thank you so much for your time and for your words and for your thoughts and for your passion. It's inspiring yeah. to me, and I know a lot of, well, my, I know my audience will really, really 
love this episode. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Awesome. I'll see you soon. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.